Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Very excited for today's guest, presidential historian Alexis Koh, and she's actually going to be in The Back Room in person with us. We will bring out Alexis in just a second. First, thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and rate and review, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. All right, it's time for Alexis. Alexis Coe is a presidential historian and a fellow at New America, where she is thinking about the presidency in anticipation of America's 250th. She is the award-winning New York Times bestselling author of You Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington, and Alice and Frida Forever, A Murder in Memphis. She frequently appears on CNN, MSNBC, CBS, History Channel, BBC, and PBS, and has been featured in and published by most major publications, including The New Yorker, New York Times, and The Washington Post. She's a frequent guest on NPR and hosted the podcasts No Man's Land and Presidents Are People Too. Alexis, welcome into the back room. Thank you for having me. And you're actually in the back room. We always get very excited when people come in the back room. I am, and I've been in the front room. I've been in all the rooms. So the reason you're in the back room is because we uh, record this in the Hudson Valley, and you are a full-timer in the Hudson Valley. 2021, I made an exodus from Brooklyn during the pandemic, like at least a quarter of the village, Mm -hmm. I would say. And I really like it. Turns out I am made for the village. I've gone full village. All right, what what does that mean? I mean, what don't I do in the village? I host... One of the village compost drop-offs. Uh-huh. Um, I coach soccer. I was in the parade. I was a horse. Perhaps you didn't recognize me. I didn't. I didn't go. Once my child was old enough not to go anymore, I stopped going. Oh, I like it. It's the cold. I'm, I don't like the cold. It was not cold. Donning a horse suit. It was yeah. actually much warmer than See, I thought. I do thought. that in my private life, but in public, I don't bring out the horse outfit. That's just that's my private. I life. know about furries. I don't know about horse culture. Yeah, there's a there's a. But by the way, and this is digressing for sure. But there's a whole there's a whole group of people in this world that like are into horse play. Look it up. <clears throat> we'll just leave it at that. You know what? Uh, Let people be into what sure, they want to exactly. be into. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, and so you're you're up here full time. You're digging it. You don't miss the city at all. I don't miss the city. I go in fairly often. Mm-hmm. What feels like fairly often. It's also it's it's an hour and twenty minutes. Right. Um. I go in once every two weeks, and then about once a month I go to D.C. I'm mm-hmm. a fellow at a think tank there, mm-hmm. and I do a bit of traveling. You know, on Tuesday I'll be in Virginia to give a lecture, but otherwise I'm very much here, which is a funny juxtaposition because either I'm flying around and I'm in the middle of things, or I'm speaking to huge groups of people, or I am in a room with 20 people and I know every single person and all of their business. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that uh, sounds like you've made a very good transition. Uh, this, this, there's a lot to be said about living in the country. I like it. I am, um, I'm really happy here. I think it's really fun. It suits me. Mm-hmm. I don't love winter. Mm-hmm. I don't love winter up here. Winters are tough. Mm-hmm. People are nicer. People are nicer. People are very nice. And I do enjoy saying, I live on Main Street with some authority. I do. I feel like I know people. I Mm -hmm. know my conservative neighbors. I know my liberal neighbors. I know how to talk to them 
so far so good. So you have figured out how to talk to your conservative neighbors. Yes, we have found points of connection. Mm. And that is, give me one. We talk about patriotism and we talk mm. about democracy. Mm. And they seem aligned on those points. I so will say there's one. The whole insurrection thing is probably just like a sidebar conversation under the patriotism umbrella. Yes, we have not gone there. Yeah. There is one neighbor. Yes, there's one neighbor who has a boyfriend who comes infrequently, maybe every few months. And I have noticed at times there is a Make America Great hat on his dashboard we have not discussed it I've, i don't think i've actually ever spoken to him mm. but they all have american flags i will say the people who have the maga hat violate the flag code mm. so well i mean donald trump hu likes to hug the flag that is all, he is violates big, it all the yes. time but also the um in during the insurrection a lot of his followers had superimposed trump's right. face onto the flag, which is a big no-no on the flag code. Yeah. Well, I think one of the beauties of being in the MAGA cult, if I can say that. One of the beauties of being in the MAGA cult. I yeah. love where this is going. Is that, you, you know, you can shape patriotism any way you want, right? You can, you know, you can be an insurrectionist. You can defile the flag. These are all things that are okay for patriots now. Anything is okay. It's funny as a no. Californian because we're very much about making our own stories and creating narratives um, to see that happen and mm. to see these. Patriotism has always been in contention and that's been sort of a beautiful thing. What does America mean? In the beginning, we all agreed, we the collective, we, Jefferson, Washington, mm. Monroe, Madison, they had vastly different conceptions of what the country would be once it started, but they could agree in principle on what it should be and how it should begin and that it should exist. But we no longer have these few things that we agree on. Right. And that's like a national problem. security and country over party, things like that have seemed to uh, gone by the wayside. Those are very important. We have to agree on just basic laws in order to function as a country. And that is why... We So America launched this age of revolutions, but America was the only one that wasn't bloody and was functional immediately. Mm. If you think about what happened in France right after, a lot of people who were involved in the American Revolution just like loved to revolution hop. And so they went to France. You have Thomas Paine ends up in jail. You have Lafayette ends up in jail. And it's bloody. Everyone's beheaded. Um, it's not really a functioning economy for a while. Everything is in 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 chaos and in america we're like oh no we don't get involved in other people's wars we're just a peaceful nation and we're trading we have already established um land and we're pushing boundaries as far as a young country we're doing quite well in comparison to everyone else well i want to get into that a lot with you shortly but i want to just go back in time a little bit because i am fascinated you're a presidential historian yes and so as a child were you like I know when parents take their kids to Disney World, Disneyland, mm -hmm. they always drag them into the Hall of Presidents. It's the last place the kids want to be. They want to, there's like kicking and screaming. They want to go on Mr. Toad's wild ride. Um, is it possible that that's not what it was like for you? No, I didn't even know there was a Hall of Presidents. Really? No. I mean, what I, kind of presidential historian are you? I can tell you 
probably by the foot about Dollywood's museum, which I have been to far more recently, but I haven't been to Disneyland since I was about 10. No, in California, we study a very different history. It's all about the gold rush and about, Mm -hmm. um, we have something called the Mission Project in which we all make missions. Um, Of course, missionaries came through California Mm -hmm. and they enslaved um, Mexican Mexicans who lived there and it was the first Spaniards and then sort of, you know, changed hands like all the superpowers. But I didn't really think critically about presidents. Although in retrospect, I say all this and then recently I was cleaning out my basement and I found a book that was gifted to me because apparently on the eighth grade trip to Washington, D.C., I wrote a poem about democracy and won first prize in something. And so this English teacher gifted me this and I emailed him I found him online and emailed him and said like isn't this funny and he was so excited he was like very excited to see what I had become and and in retrospect everything makes sense Mm -hmm. but it really wasn't until um until college that I got very into American history in particular and it was completely by accident and when you say American history did like politics uh combine with that or and so what was it that at that stage in your life made you wake up and go, wow, there's there's a, a whole world here that I'm really interested in in the past. Complete fluke. I loved English and I was a literature major and I was two years into, um, and I was also, in, in California, if you graduate in a certain percent of your class, you get to basically sort of own a college. You get to create your own schedule. You get your choice of the best dorm. I lived, you know, on a beach and um, I got tutorials, so one-on-one with professors, and I was writing my um, honors thesis. It was an honors college. I was writing my honors thesis on Ulysses. And in order to, of course, understand Irish literature, I had to understand Irish history. But those history classes were pretty high up, mm. and so I had to take introduction, you know, sort of world history and American history, and that is where it really clicked for me. I absolutely loved it. Suddenly I thought, well, this is incredible drama. Why am I reading things that are manufactured when I can just look at these contested narratives that people present and sort of reconcile them? And then primary sources really had me. You know, I loved, um, when I say primary sources, people think, oh, you're going into archives, but they don't really know what you're looking at. You're reconciling all these things. It's like you're just snooping. I am a detective. I am a snoop. And I am reading letters, diaries, ledgers, bank statements, whatever exists, you know, sc- just notes scrawled on papers. And that for me was really exciting and quiet work. And then I just sort of knew I wasn't meant for the world. I've never really had a, a real job. I went to graduate school. I left graduate school to be a curator at the NYPL in New York in Bryant Park. And um, I took a leave to write my first book. And then it was sort of from there, I just kept doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And all I can say is I love what I do. And that is what has led me to each project. So I can't really say, oh, I was very interested in this or that. I'm not, you know, if you talk to if you talk to Robert Caro, if you're just like sitting down talking to Robert Mm, Caro. Who doesn't? Yeah, I know. You know, just well, obviously, he's not finishing that book. So if you're if you're talking to Robert Carroll, actually will... no, it, I'm friends with uh, well his editor Gottlieb, right? Yes, Lizzie Gottlieb is a friend of mine. That documentary is very good. Very good. Um, and he will say he loves power, mm. and he's very interested in power. And for me, that is the least interesting part. 
I find power sort of boring in some ways. And I think that's why I've never lived in D.C. and I don't love spending a tremendous amount of time there. Mm. And so I'm very interested in stories that Mm. are not quite what they seem. Presidential history is dominated by white men. And what that means is you just get one perspective and white men tend not to be very curious about other people. And when you, you know, so, so for instance, I, Doris Krinsgren and I worked on a documentary together mm-hmm. and I was of course so excited. First, I, I really couldn't take on the project. It was busy. She took me out for drinks. She just completely like. You got courted by Doris. Oh That's yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Was she like a early inspiration of yours? No, I, I liked her, but she wasn't, I wasn't engaged in that way. I, I right. always sort of made my own path for me. You know, she's very interested in leadership and power. And so those are things that um, I'm interested in as far as the qualities of a leader. And that's very much what I'm working on now at the Think Tank. But I'm not as interested in the way that she sort of tells history. I like it. I find it informative. But it's not what I do. It's not how I approach it. And that's fine because every generation needs new storytellers. Mm-hmm. But I um, so th- what was interesting to me, though, about our relationship and how, how it kind of ensued over the next year is she was so excited to know me. So we would be at to din- we would be at dinner or something, and she would say like, "What would you have done in this situation 25 years ago?" And she would ask me all these questions because she had never had another woman in the room, and it's a boys' club. So I was amazed to know that she had not really met Meacham and Betchloss and all those guys. Like she knew them, but she hadn't really been away with them. And then she was at something, and they were all smoking cigars. So it's very much a boys' club. So they club. are their buddies. Those guys. Wow, that's interesting. But you wrote a book about George Washington. I did. And it got very critically acclaimed because it approached Washington through the lens of a female. Well, I was the first woman historian. Like in decades, right? Um, Over 100 years. And then I just stopped counting. Right. I stopped counting. I confirmed it with the Washington papers at the University of Virginia and Mount Vernon. And then I thought, oh, well, this explains a lot. I, but I didn't realize that actually until I was a couple years into it. Um, but you also, but you, in writing the book, you sort of tackled it from a different perspective because you felt that all the biographers of Washington were just so obsessed with like guy stuff, like his thighs. You commented a lot about his thigh, like how writers talk about how strong and manly he was. And you recall, you had a name for them? Th- the thigh men. The yes. Thigh men. The thigh men of dad history. It's sort of like one of those things. Um, when you're in grad school, you want to come up with a term, like a serious academic term that people know and they talk about. And if you had told me that that would be mine, I would not have been thrilled. The But it's such a critique of biographers of presidents like Washington because yes. it seems like such an... An insignificant detail. It's insignificant, but it really, the Thiamen, well, that's particular to Washington. I would say in general, presidential history is um, thwarted and unappealing to a wider group of people because it focuses on power. It focuses on masculinity and everything is presented like it's destiny. Like they were like little Lincoln in the log cabin was just always going to be assassinated. You know, he was always going to be a part of this larger story. And that's simply not true. And it actually denies them a good amount of agency. And with Washington, the thing that was funny to me, and I do, I approach everything with sort of a dark humor. It's, it's who I am. What was funny to me is it was almost like reading a romance novel. Mm. 
And I've only been a second reader on a romance novel. One of my friends is a romance writer. And so that's literally all I've ever done is, is read the works of Jasmine Guillory, which is very good. But I have never read other romance novels. And I, I just thought, this is, they're talking about his the muscles in his jaw rippling. This is weird. Like, what does this do to further our understanding of this man? And they would obsess over his thighs in ways that were uncomfortable. If they had written this about a woman, people would have been up in arms. If a woman had written this about a man, they'd be like, what is her deal? Mm -hmm. They would talk about how his thighs gripped the flanks of a horse and in a real erotic manner. And so it I told seemed you. funny. See, we're coming back to horseplay now. Oh, it's all it all comes back to horseplay. It, it always does. So the book, which came out in 2020, is called You Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington. So how did you see George Washington different than the, the thigh men? I knew the first thing I understood about slavery and presidential history before I even endeavored to write this book was that slavery was not a chapter. Usually slavery is reserved for a chapter in a book and otherwise it's completely absent. Not and even that to Nikki Haley. My God, that's a whole different day. Yeah. They tend to um, present this narrative, he's a man of his time. Well, so were those men he enslaved, and so were the women, and so were the people who didn't enslave other people, and abolitionists were men of their time. So it's not as if the narrative didn't exist. This is a choice. We're always making choices in our life. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, well, I need, he, Washington owned hundreds of people, so that's not right. And surely we can put together something better. Um, and so that was really important to me. And then I just kept noticing that, you know, women in history in general, not just presidential history, but political history, which is what I focused on in graduate school, they're often just a reflection of the man. So they're just there to tell you what the man's doing or, you know, to, to talk about, to offer some detail. Otherwise, they're completely irrelevant. They're not fully formed humans. They don't have their own wants and desires. They're usually complaining. They're presented as shrewish or bothering their husband or their father or their brother or whoever it is. And immediately, um, something seemed really off to me about, in particular, Ron Chernow of, of Hamilton fame, of his descriptions of Washington's mother because she was just like, my God, how did he ever survive? Um, and then he wrote something, and this is what really set me off. And there are these things, like I, when I said I'm a detective, I really mean that. And I sort of smell things. Like I smell some things off, even in a secondary source. It's a gift and a curse. And I smelled something was off with this, in particular because they said that um, Chernow and all the other, they, the collective Thymen, um Ellis, all these other people, they said that uh, his mother, Mary Washington, was illiterate. And I thought, well, but I've, you're quoting letters from her. And I, I went to Mount Vernon when I was 22 or something when I was researching at the Library of Congress when I was in grad school. And I, I remember seeing her diaries and they had her name. And so there's something going on mm -hmm. here. And then I realized it was a class thing. And um, you sometimes people are called illiterate when they don't read novels and they're not educated. You're, um, and then I thought, well, that's strange. And then I just kept reading. I check, kept checking all the primary sources, like all the end notes and the footnotes, and no story checked out. Hmm. Like absolutely no rendering of this woman was true. And then I felt like, well, and this is how it is in all my work. This is probably gets to your, the, the original question, which is why do I do what I do? If I don't then intervene and correct the narrative, I feel like I'm complicit. And then it kind of haunts me. Mm. This, is, this is the baggage I carry around as a person. 
Well, it, it's it. There's a need clearly for things in this world, especially history, to go through the lens of a woman when it's historically been so dominated. The, the perspectives have been so dominated by men, and it's it's like you you're just getting one interpretation. I mean, case in point with Washington, whether it's his thighs or his mother, if one thing is insignificant and another thing is in, it somewhat inaccurate, like this is what our, our kids are lear learning about, our, our first presidents. But you, you, know, you can also project that out to other things, like women should rule the world. It's time for women to rule the world because uh, men, not only their perspectives, but their behavior sometimes is really bad. There's a lack of curiosity about experiences outside of themselves. Are you saying men are simple? I'm saying they're self-centered, perhaps. They're, they, they are interested in being in rooms with men. And so it's, it's interesting as a woman who works in a male-dominated space because I exist in, in these homosocial worlds. Mm. And homosocial worlds are, of course, like fraternities and just different spaces where women are not traditionally allowed. And if they are allowed now, they're not totally welcome. Um, I have a different experience now since the book came out. It's sort of split. Half the men are very interested in what I have to say and, and, and terrified that they're going to offend me. And then the other half are terrified that I will, um, that they will just talk to me and offend me and then I'll come after mm. them and cancel them or something, which is a funny thing because mm. I'm, I like weigh under a hundred pounds. <laughs> they are just, um, they're, they're welcoming this way, but I would say it's more of, um, a teach me situation, even in the best of circumstances. And I don't think that's totally necessary. I do think there's a capacity for men to imagine worlds outside of themselves. I just think that they're not used to it. And it's they there's something in them that just resists it. Like if you've ever dealt with a small child who just does not want to do something, doesn't want to learn something, doesn't want to engage, you know that they can, but there's just something stopping them. And that is always fascinating to see in an adult. Mm -hmm. I have three daughters, and I, uh, I will tell you that <clears throat> I think men are overrated. I'm not going to disagree, but, you know. So the title alone is kind of provocative. Another thing I did not intend to include. So both thigh men and... Um, the title were both kind of in brackets as I'll describe them. And I have second readers who read my first mm -hmm. book and who just I, I pass work along with. And um, they across when they all disagree, it's great. And when they all agree, I go, oh, no, I guess I really have to address this thing. Either they love it or they don't. If they don't, I know I have to sort of I have to fix it. They all took the brackets out and they capitalized thigh and men. And then with you, you never forget your first it was a working title. It was just supposed to be to sell the book. And then, you know, everyone knew this. But whenever my bio, I do a lot of events, I moderate, I, I speak. Whenever my bio is read, there would be this pause. And she's working on a biography of George Washington called You Never Forget Your First. Me a little beat. And then everyone would erupt in laughter and then talk about how excited they were. Mm -hmm. And women and people of color in particular. And that's a huge thing because traditionally um, publishing, book publishing considers them to be outside of the interest group. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty sure that was because of slavery being in a chapter and of this hyper-focus on masculinity in homosocial worlds. And, and I thought, okay, if this disarms people, I'm not thrilled with it, but I guess I can get behind it. And I do have this sort of dark sense of humor. And then I went to the publisher and told them, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's been the title for a long time. We were never going to change it. 
And it was very effective. Yeah. Well, you look very young, but was George Washington your first? <laughs> he was, well, I mean, he was all of our first, right? Not he mine. Really was, he was your first. Martha was mine. Oh, Martha. Well, yeah, yeah. oh my goodness. I would, I would just so yeah. much rather spend time with George than Martha. She, so the thing with Washington, I don't, everyone always asks me, who's your favorite president? It's the number, it's the number one question I get. And I just have this like, one, it's a professional thing. So I don't have a favorite. It's like asking who's your favorite child. I don't, I don't think, I only have one, but I don't think you have a favorite. Do you have a favorite child? No. Are we on? Are we on? Okay. <laughs> Is this recording? No, I don't have a favorite child. I don't have a favorite president. I, and to me, they're. a favorite dog though. Oh, Sure. But they're, they're fully formed people to mm-hmm. me. I know them on their best days. I know them on their worst days. And they're complicated people to me. Mm-hmm. They're ones I would like to have, you know, I will answer the dinner party question. Who would you, who would you invite to dinner? But I don't, I don't have a favorite. So for me, Washington is obviously the first. But they're all a part of our lives because we invite them into our homes. They're really past. I was thinking about this, you know, I, I for so long hated the founding fathers, this idea of them being our fathers. It seems imposed on you. And there's a, a, a fissure, right? There's this thing about two Americas. And, and one America is, and I deal with this all the time with Washington, with these people who are like, I don't want to learn about Washington. He owned slaves. And, you know, I have to correct them. One, it's enslaved. He was an enslaver. And because what's, it's not, what, a, what's the not a permanent state. When mm-hmm. you're saying someone is a slave, you're, you're suggesting that defines them completely. And mm-hmm. that's not. These people had hopes and dreams and loves and children and, and all sorts of experiences that, unfortunately, we, we don't know a lot about. Um, and they could have been free. Mm. And some of them were freed within this time period in which slavery was legal. Um, and also, why are you going to go, why are you going to exist in a world and not be informed enough to fight your point so if you think that these people were awful you need information in order to argue that point you can't just say they were awful and like sort of some America you dismiss them and you're also never going to understand your country and then with the other end of the spectrum are the people who are like they're trying to cancel him he we should celebrate him you know the man of his time and I tell them like you think he's going to be canceled best of luck you cannot cancel George Washington like how are you going to do that He's a part of the founding story. You cancel George Washington, you literally erase all of our memories. It's like a zombie takeover. Like, it's not going to happen. However, I do believe people have the capacity to hold two things at once. We can look at someone like Washington, Jefferson, all of these people, and say they did incredible things and they did awful things. Mm -hmm. But, like, that's not our job. We're not assigned these people at birth as our heroes. That's a personal choice. You make it whatever. It's like who you want to love. You do that on your own time. These are people who are historically significant, and that's why they're important, and that's why we need to study them. Do you think it's 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 important to overlook some of their warts because of they because they were products of their time? We're not overlooking. I'm not overlooking. Mm-hmm. I'm not engaging in any sort of overlooking. I'm also not judging them. Mm-hmm. That's not my job. My job mm-hmm. is to. Um, I would say it's not to. My job is not to present them in the best light it's to bring them as fully into the light as i can Mm -hmm. and that's it you do what you want with that information i don't know how useful of an exercise it is to cancel someone or to talk in these extreme terms because this is the world we live in and so we have to figure out a way to negotiate it 
but that does not mean that we accept it. It means that we inform ourselves as, as much as possible and then push, push, push for change, reparations, to call right. plantations forced labor camps. Those are really important things that I would not be able to do if I did not constantly study this. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I, I'm, I'm agreeing with all that. I was just sort of asking, like, we're all products of our time. I think there was context. I don't think that... I think context is really useful. So, for example, when we talk about presidents and mm -hmm. corruption and laws right. and all of these things, you know, Washington was the first president. He set in, in really important precedents, like the peaceful transition of power that existed for, um, you know, almost 250 years until Trump. He uh, invented the cabinet. The Constitution said that there should be nothing that looks like the Privy Council, nothing that looks like Parliament. And he also lived in Philadelphia. That was the second residence of the president's house, Foggy Bottom, D.C., mm -hmm. not, not developed yet. So it started out in New York, and then it moved as a compromise down to Philly. And Philly at the time had a law that was very different than Virginia, where Washington lived, that said that if, if, a, if an enslaved person was in Philly for six months, they were free. And so what did Washington and his cabinet, his uh, secretary, a uh, man named Randolph, what did they do? They corresponded really openly, the president of the United States, secretary of war, all these people about, as it was called then, about how to break those laws. Don't tell these people. And Washington would write things like, I think that they're better off being owned by me then they aren't being free. Like, let's just let's mm -hmm. just be real here. And he fully believed that. But then you also have Martha. You're gonna you're gonna take back your earlier comment about wanting to spend time with her, saying, "Well, you know, blacks are just so bad in their nature." And it's a quote from one of her letters. Mm -hmm. And you have the Marquis de Lafayette writing to Washington and saying, "Look, the world is going a different way." Slavery was illegal by that time in London. It doesn't mean that the trade wasn't happening. It means that you couldn't buy and sell in London. So what if you set this incredible example as the most famous man in the world? He defeated the British. He gave up power twice. Unthinkable in the time of kings and despots. What if you gave, what if you freed hundreds of people within your lifetime it would change the future of democracy and show the world something incredible. And Washington was like, you are such a sweet person. I can't wait to see you when you come visit in 15 years because it'll take that long to come over and to get out of jail and, you know, quite another revolution. Um, bless your heart kind of situation. Mm -hmm. There are many letters about people coming to Mount Vernon to Washington's home and talking about how the enslaved people wore... Um, tattered clothing they didn't look as if they were in good conditions so they did not recognize basic humanity in other people they thought it was just for men and, and when we talk about equal rights for men they also only meant landowning men mm. like the definition gets narrower and narrower so it's really hard for me to say they were men of their time they wanted to hold on to an old regime the same way we see that happening today. Power corrupts. Power becomes 
if you if you indulge it, it becomes this thing that can just completely infiltrate every part of your being. Well, that's a great segue to my next question. Speaking of power and corruption, what is it like being a presidential historian in the age of Trump? I did not see that coming. Wow. How naive you are. I know. When I, um, things, many things that graduate school did not prepare me for, media training, you know, you're, you're, you think about tenure, you think about these things you can and cannot do. And my career has taken a very different turn and I'm grateful for it. But I remember thinking there's no way that he's going to be elected president and I will start to have these conversations all the time. I had just started to comment, you know, I was, I was, um, I don't know, 10, 15 years into my career, which for a historian is still like a baby, you know, you don't usually progress this quickly, which is a blessing and a curse. I'm sort of alone in my generation. It's like me, Doris, Beschloss, you know, all these people. And it became really, really difficult to um and and emotional in a way that i was not used to i needed to take breaks from my work when i would read say um washington writing a letter a letter to an overseer about selling an enslaved man which by the way for a long time mount vernon completely denied existed and for a long time i mean like until like a year ago but i would get very emotional and then the pandemic happened and i had like a six month old i was starting to separate from her dad it, it was a bad scene. I was like in a one bedroom in Brooklyn. <laughs> it was no good. So Trump was the and then I was the also then I was sitting, you know, in between a crib on wheels mm. and a, a fridge on TV. Giving, co- you know, talking about these things and the summer of George Floyd and watching monuments. My God, if you had told me that I would talk about monuments all the time, mm-hmm. as if that was a significant part of a, of, of a historian's life. Like we learn nothing from monuments. We don't. Monuments didn't even exist until the daughters of the revolution started spending money on them and the daughters of the Confederacy more important. Um, like one nation under God, you know, we this this. That was not in the Constitution. In fact, the, the founders would have hated it. They talked about how that should not be a part of our vernacular. It should not be the parlance of America. That happened in the 50s, the 1950s. And so, it, you know, for me to suddenly have all these things be a part of my life, it was definitely frustrating. But I did feel um, an urgency that historians don't normally feel in our everyday work. I did suddenly feel like I had to be everywhere. I was I was sort of triaging Everything felt important and like there was an opportunity. And in some cases, a lot of headway was made. I got the White House Historical Society to change a good deal about their website and the way that they talk about slavery. I had all these inroads and then I would also lose a lot of battles. So I'm I'm very much what I realized. I'm in this like sort of I'm in a cold war mm. and we have all these slow battles. And that's just sort of what my career is going to be. Is it just is it unfathomable to you that someone like him could ascend to the presidency as someone who's written a book about George Washington, who has your career is the, the study of presidents and history. I mean, I, when I think of it, it's astounding to me. No, it's not. It's not. When you think about, I didn't think he would win. Like Trump in particular, because he had failed at so many things and because he, I didn't think that America would enjoy inviting such a crass person into their home all the time. It was sort of like a, you know, that's like emotional terrorist that he became in our lives. But you see, that's the interesting part is that 
you're smart, so you knew he was a failure at so many things. But he convinced all the people who voted for him that made him president that he was the opposite of that, that he's a winner. But we knew about aspirational voting. So I knew that he would get a lot of people um, to vote for him. And I also the history of the, the like modern history of the Republican Party. They love to talk about Lincoln sometimes. But the modern history of the Republican Party set this up. Gingrich, all these guys introduced this into the party of Reagan, right? And they were they have not been the party of Reagan for a long time. The young Republicans, all those guys were in their 60s with Trump and 70s. So Roger Stone, mm-hmm. all these just insane looking men who in the 60s and 70s wanted to go back to the 50s and 40s. When when we talk about the 50s, people think, "Oh, I don't know, poodle skirts and... and Elvis. Yeah, Elvis. No, we're talking about segregation. We're talking about austerity. We're talking about... um, McCarthyism. Mortality rates. Mm -hmm. The living was not easy. The living was not good. Mm -hmm. And those are people who wanted that. Um, And so for me, that made sense. I just didn't think it would be him, but it's sort of like winter, you know, in like a lion out with a lamb. I was like, oh, my God, is this the American experiment? It's it's in like a lion and we go out with this guy. Um, And I joke about it, but the stakes could not be higher. If Trump is reelected, the American experiment is over. Mm -hmm. And to talk in that way in these like these this is I'm this is not the way I think about American history. And so it's a, it's a really jarring experience. But I did make this joke that I came to like kind of rue. But also, thank God, I, I wish I had like written an essay with that. Is I wish my op-ed that year had been I always write like one for the times a year. I wish that had been the headline, which is it'll be fine as long as nothing happens. <laughs> and then everything happened. Yes, of course. So as a presidential historian, I need you to answer a very, a very important question uh, because Trump has said he has suffered more than Lincoln. Oh, my so I wanna, God. Oh, I think we're going to break some news here tonight. That's not accurate, is it? No, he also said today that he would beat. He said someone told him. I was like, is that someone you, sir? Someone told him that he would beat Washington or Lincoln by like at least 30 or 40 points, which I, I love all that. Well, he said, you, you, I saw that, you, I think you retweeted that. And uh, he, he's, whenever he says, sir, like someone said, mm-hmm. sir, like that's, you know, he's lying. Oh, man, <laughs> any respect, anything that starts out with respect. I mean, he's, if the man is awake, it's like if, if he's awake, if he's breathing, he's lying. And first of all, Washington was unanimously elected. So best of luck with that. Lincoln, he, I mean, I wanted to sort of, I didn't have time, but if I were to really unpack this, my first thought was, are you saying that you're Jefferson Davis? Like, yes, you would have won half the country or really, you know, by the time he was inaugurated, you would have seceded. And guess what that war was about? Guess why they seceded? Slavery. They explicitly say it. In all their speeches, there's something called the cornerstone speech that the vice president of the Confederacy gave. And and he says, this is about the Negro being lesser than the white man. Mm-hmm. This is about maintaining the natural order. Mm-hmm. This is about the North saying that should not exist anymore. Like, it could not be clearer. And everyone's like, states' rights, states' rights. States' rights to own people. Yeah. Like, ridiculous. 
So you mentioned before, as you look at presidents like your children, so is is Trump the the child you'd have that you sent away to military school? No, you don't no. Talk about him. I mean, I like think like his it, actual parents did. I think about them as children. As I can't pick a favorite. I think about them as people, um, and I don't know a perfect person. When you know when those C-SPAN rankings come out, and they say Washington is the best president, or maybe mm-hmm. sometimes Lincoln, and then at the very bottom you have someone like Hoover, and now Trump. We don't just sort of put them in order. I take part in this. We don't put them in order. There are categories that have to do with communication, charisma. And unfortunately, though, that does not appeal to, say, the people in this room. Trump is charismatic far more than Biden. Now, empathy, Biden is through the roof. Mm -hmm. But the guy could cure cancer. No one would give him credit. Then you have empathy with Trump. He has absolutely none. And so that's why he thinks he's the victim and everything. But he is a total, you know, we're a nation of armchair diagnosticians. Mm -hmm. And that is not, I'm not that kind of doctor. But I do think that what he has, we will, we will know a lot more about in like 10, 20 years. And that's also the thing about a presidency and about a president, even with someone like Trump, I can't really totally assess him and feel confident in that. For a while, mostly because we just don't know what's going to come out as we've learned. So are you are you not comfortable like today saying he's a sociopath? You think I there don't, are certain, certain things we're going to learn about him in 10 or 15 years that will. I'm not qualified. Right. Let me tell you, everyone tells me. So the fun things that people say to a presidential historian. So I've never met one. I do, how did you get into that? Um, why they're all sociopaths. That's a big thing. I've never realized that everyone can so clearly identify sociopaths and so many of them on well, a that, place. That's that. startling to me because I wouldn't agree with that. But I've spent time Googling what is a sociopath. And I got to say. Uh, Ticks no a lot of boxes. He, he checks all of the boxes. Yeah. And I, I think that I will tell you this. There's this moment in which it, I, I love this moment. And I, I love that. And this is an example of like things that I love. And when I say I love, I don't mean like it's my, it's my favorite thing. Like it's not my favorite dress, but I love this moment in presidential history where you find it in an archive or a letter or whatever. When you hear what the president said when they learned that they had actually won. So with Lincoln, he said, God help me, God help me, God help me. Washington said, I am on my way to my execution. And I have never heard what Trump said, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't aligned with any of that. And so that's where he does, he is certainly, if there is an out group here, if there is an outlier, Mm. that is him, for sure. But I am not equipped to say, Mm. and we also, I'm afraid to say, like, we don't know, it it maybe hasn't gotten as as bad as it can get. That our lives drastically changed mm-hmm. when Trump was president. And it was not just because of COVID. We know that he's shattered norms. We know that institutions have been, if not destroyed, seriously gutted. Gutted. Yeah. Um, how much of that do you think is permanent? We live in an age where there is something called the politics of performance. And there's a lot of grandstanding. There's not, and there have always been one or two of these guys, you know, who love to give these outrageous speeches and people would go to watch them. And certainly Andrew Jackson loved to um, inspire the same kind of ire from what he viewed as the enemies. 
the problem is it's so much bigger than Trump. Trump is just sort of bumbling about, right, and making bad decision after bad decision. But the Republican Party has been working strategically for quite a long time. Voter rights, for example, 1965 Voter Rights Act. We didn't really have an issue with, with voters' rights or, or sort of access, all these things. You, you had small things here and there. But it really wasn't a big deal until the Supreme Court gutted it. Why did they gut it? Because the Supreme Court has been stacked, and, and that's a whole different problem. What's really an issue is that the Republicans have redistricted so much. They've redrawn the lines, and they also have infiltrated the courts to a degree that is devastating on the ground. And so something that is, I'm taking a weirdly positive light here, weirdly optimistic, is that you have a lot of emphasis, a lot of them. I went to Obama's Democracy Forum um, in November, and it was really interesting. It was a sort of conference, but also a celebration of his historic election. And there were people from Guggenheim and Pulitzer and all these different organizations that give money places. Mm -hmm. And across the board, everyone is investing in local local newspapers, local politics, local, and that's not the way it used to be. It used to be kind of centered in New York and DC. And actually the same in my cohort of fellows at New America, this think tank in DC, I am one of two or three people who's working on a national project. Everyone else is really boots to the ground in their own district, working on really important, um, working on civic literacy in some way. And I think that will change things. So I do think there's a lot of positive changes happening I also think whenever I hear the school shooting generation talk whenever I hear them talk about gun control or climate change I am floored by how pragmatic they are and how they'll dismiss these comments or questions from the audience at the end of a talk that seem extreme or frustrated or like no this is burn it all down like you never fix this and they're like no you can we just have to go about it this way and like we're making inroads here so I do think we're all tired they're not yet and that's funny because I am I'm relatively young but I feel very tired when presenting presented with these questions and I do like fundamentally prefer dead people but I do think that there is this way in I do which... too and I'm just gonna leave that there I'm not gonna tell you why or who I'm referring to <laughs> but uh... those are my colleagues those are my people and uh, dead people and librarians, like those are the living people I accept in my life. I think there's a lot to look forward to, but I do think that Trump is a, um, as much as he seems like the root, he's not, he's just a great spokesman, just like Reagan was. He's a symptom of a bigger problem. And uh, the biggest problem of all is the two-party system. There's a funny tweet today by um, Ben Steele, who is the director of economics at the uh, Council on Foreign Relations, in which he said that um, America's oil output is has gone up like unprecedented numbers, huge or whatever, as Trump would say. And he said, what's funny is the Republicans won't talk about it because it'll give the Democrats credit and the Democrats won't talk about it because it's oil. Like, they don't want to touch it. Right. 
And so we just were in a really funny moment in which we desperately need more parties. And there are other people at the think tank working on this about dismantling this two-party system. We used to. We stopped the Whig Party. We had other parties. The Republican Party started. Lincoln was their first big candidate because the party that existed no longer worked for them. We can do this. There are mechanisms. We just have to um, work on a lot of reform. We have to figure out how to lessen the money that goes to these places. So you briefly touched on Trump 2.0 before. Tell us what it looks like to you if he becomes president again. Give us the best case scenario and the worst case scenario. I mean, the best case scenario is he goes in and he does not last very long. I mean, honestly, he just dies. And then I'm worried about who's his VP because he won't pick someone who has a spine. He's looking at Tim Scott. And it's funny, I was at this... I, I was on a very weird first date like a year ago in D.C. and I went to this dinner that media is not allowed in. And I I barely knew who Tim Scott was. And Tim all, Scott barely knows who Tim Scott yeah, is. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, everyone's Tim Scott, Tim Scott. And he gave this like nothing burger of a speech. And I was like, oh, my God, wasn't that the best speech you've ever heard? Standards are very low in D.C., but there was this moment where I thought, like, okay, this is significant. And, like, he will probably be the VP. That's a problem because he'll just do what everyone else tells him. So this is, but, you know, four years, we can survive four so years. Let's if play that like out him. for a second. If that's what you're thinking, let's, let's play Best case play scenario, out. he but, dies. So she said it, folks, not me, yep. even though I'm thinking it. Um, so it's. Can't wait for the emails about this. It's, uh, it's on the minds of a lot of people. You're just. <laughs> channeling we've got two old You're men channeling. so uh, it's january 2029 mm-hmm. trump is leaving his second term not he's not willingly, going to leave not willingly instead of mike pence there's someone like tim scott does tim scott not do his constitutional duty and certify the election the way pence did are you suggesting that tim scott won't have that kind of integrity He's not that guy. I don't even know if it'll get to that point. If, well, let's say that worst case scenario. That's no, no, no. I'm saying if Trump is reelected, we will not get to that point. There oh, will I see no longer saying. be term limit. When someone tells you who they are, believe right. them. And you he mean has the dictator ex- thing. He's explicitly <laughs> said it. He's repeatedly said it. What has this man ever said and not tried to do? He has turned troops on protesters. People like General Mattis, these sort of public servants, say what you will about them. They had some principle often really messed up at the beginning of this conversation we talked about the real problem is there's we don't agree on basic rules there have to be laws that we all follow whereas the whole thing falls apart Mm -hmm. so if we're not following those rules we're not following those laws it's just whatever the person in power is deciding that's a pretty big problem i'm not sure what that looks like then we We might have to have a revolution, but I don't think that will look like the Civil War. We are a different country. We're a different people. Mm -hmm. Um, It will be fought through different means and in different mediums. But life as we know it, just the way it halted under COVID and became really oppressive, that will continue. Mm -hmm. And the problem we face here is he is an excellent instrument, but he is not he is again a symptom of the problem and george washington look i hate saying that these guys knew how we would live they were not superhumans could who could predict the future if he knew that like 
a Jewish girl from L.A. would be his chief biographer at this point, he would not be happy. He would not conceive of a world in which that was possible. However, in his farewell address, he wrote that the problem with political parties, he was very, he's the only president who has not claimed one, even though he was like clearly a federalist. The problem with political parties is that people stop thinking about the electorate, focus completely on the party and on maintaining power, and then they do anything to make that happen. And the natural sort of ending of that is a dictator. He said despot. Mm -hmm. That's what's going to happen. So he warned us about all of these things and also about foreign influence. Because if foreign money starts coming in, then it's all over. Mm -hmm. He was very much a non-interventionist, which is like a different thing. But So my last question on Trump, there's probable and there's possible. Mm-hmm. It's, it's possible he could be president again. To me, it's highly improbable almost to the point of being virtually impossible. Uh, and the reason I say that, and I'm interested in hearing whether or not you think I'm crazy or not, or naive, is that he didn't win in 2020. Yes, he didn't win the popular election either. Like, he didn't win against Hillary. Hillary won the popular That's right. vote. Yes. Well, how many Republicans have done that in the last 40 years or whatever? It's actually so, yes, but it's, it's, it's not as much as we think. It's not. It's just like Samuel Jackson has not played more than three presidents, but we think he's played like twenty. <laughs> he hasn't. So okay. So so my theory is, Trump lost and lost pretty sizably before impeachment, before insurrection, before indictment, before yeah. ninety-one felony counts, before a court, you know, adjudicating him on fraud and rape. Okay, he didn't have the suburban women back then. He didn't have the independence back then. So. I try to understand from just a purely lot, putting aside fear and paranoia and all this, the world's coming to an end. I try to understand in using just the math. How does he gain constituents? How does he gain voters when all he's done is just erode his base further and further? Let's look at Gerald Ford, the pardon. Very few people were happy about it at the time tanked Ford's presidency along with other things but that was the principal thing over and actually I think um, Pew was in the middle of a poll mm-hmm. when Ford pardoned Nixon and most people said no you know he needs to be held accountable we need to understand what was going on and then that reckoning never happened if you look at the polls now on the pardon much more forgiving about 80% think that Ford did the right thing by mm-hmm. pardoning Nixon. Mm-hmm. And that is now happening with Trump. As bonkers as it seems, the more indictments, the more, um, you know, the more hearings, the more he is held in contempt, the more sympathy he seems to be getting. From who? From people who voted for him the first time around and from people who really cannot see and the part a part of it is that biden is not a great communicator he's he's going to go down as far as historians are concerned if we're still allowed to speak the truth because i don't know if if trump is elected the insurrectionists are going to be known as patriots and i'll I'll go i'll be in jail but the will not fare well there but the thing is that 
this idea that he is getting a bad rap, he's, he's repeating it so often that, the, that people feel as if there's an injustice and that why can't we just move on? And then it becomes the reason we can't move on is not because Trump won't move on, which is the reason we can't move on. Had he just given back the documents, had he, I mean, he would have definitely gone down for a lot of things eventually. But had he just not given back the, you know, had he done all these things, it would have been fine. It's because he did this and because he did that. Now it's becoming we won't let it go. We being people who believe in democracy and the rule of law. So then we're the problem. So then they're voting against a party. And as insane as that sounds, that is what ha that's what's happening. And Biden is not good at talking about how he's improved lives. The thing with the fireside chats, as quaint as it sounds, mm -hmm. is they were not as often, they weren't as frequent as I think people think, and they were targeted. They started out with my friend, so not like enemies. You didn't, you didn't say these people are good because they believe this, these people are bad because they believe up friends. This is how banking works. Mm -hmm. This is what we've got to do. It's going to be like pretty difficult for a little and then we'll get through and everything will be okay. Biden's not doing that. So people don't know that he's in that scenario, even trying to do something about banking. They don't, you know, they forget about debt as far as, you know, college. You know, they forget about these things. He's not doing, they forget about vaccinations. You know, no one's talking about bleach anymore. anymore. And, Biden, when he tries to harness like American power, when he did this talk at Valley Forge, it was a huge missed opportunity. He could have talked about how actually Washington was really divisive and Congress sent a delegation to Valley Forge during that really tough first winter to like read him the riot act and possibly replace him. And this one delegate, Francis Dana, described this moment in which he went down there like really ready to take on Washington. And then he realized that everything they were hearing that was negative was by like the hero of Saratoga, other people who wanted that power, who wanted that job. And while Washington was maybe not their cup of tea, he was doing the right thing. And in that situation, when someone is just going to do the right thing, you go with them. You trust them and you decide like we can just, again, agree on one thing. And Francis Dana would later call that the proudest moment of his life. Mm-hmm. A similar moment happened with McCarthy. Have you no decency, sir? A similar moment happened with Nixon when the party turned against him. That has not happened. And that, to me, actually is the most alarming. Well, I, I agree with you in large part with the part of his base that is firmly in the cult. But... I found it really interesting, the exit polling and the results out of New Hampshire, mm -hmm. which proved that he doesn't, ha he doesn't have the support he had in 2020. Nikki Haley won the independents. Nikki Haley won moderate Republicans. He didn't have the turnout he had. Same with Iowa. So I, I, I try to filter out the noise and just look at the facts on the ground, and I, I just I don't, see, I don't see a path for him. I'm not sure... I think it'll be close. I think it'll be close. Mm -hmm. I like to think he won't win. I do think there's, I don't think that he could steal the election. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that, that it works that way. And I think Dominion and all these other places have proven that quite well. What I do think is historically polls at this point tell us nothing. Sure. 
they're usually wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that we're getting the full picture. I don't think it's a shoe in. Mm -hmm. And I think the problem is less on that side and more on this side, meaning more on the liberal side, more on the pro-democracy side. Because people are apathetic. They're frustrated. Mm -hmm. They're, um, they think that, you know, the January 6th committee, everything should move faster. Everything should be happening. He shouldn't even be able, he should be, you know, in handcuffs somewhere. I'm not sure that will ever happen either. Mm -hmm. I think the best we can hope for is like house arrest at Mar-a-Lago, which will be mm -hmm. a weird <laughs> little country. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. I hope not for literally everyone's sake. But I think that this is a moment in which the Democrats are not stepping up as they should. The president is not communicating as she, he should. He's leading as he should. He's, he has been. Life has gotten much better. Something is missing. And America is at a juncture in which things need to change. And to say he's not going to be elected is sort of like saying we'll be okay. These institutions will be okay. I... I wish I was that certain. Mm -hmm. We are not, because then I, I feel like we, we can very easily lean into American exceptionalism and we are no different. Not anymore. No, I, I just feel like, uh, and certainly there's no certainty with this, but I just feel like, a, 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 you know, nine, 10 months in politics is a lifetime, especially now when the next nine months are going to be cray cray from his trials, possible convictions, uh, the economy's on fire. So I think when people pull the curtain and vote and inflation is under 3% and unemployment is still under 4 or 3% or whatever, and their savings, everything is going well, they're going to be like, all right, Biden, he's old, he's this, he's that. I, I don't feel anything for him, but that guy's nuts and I ain't voting for that dude. Like, it just comes to a binary choice, and Biden, for a lot of people, even though I think he's one of the greatest first-term presidents ever, he's the lesser of two evils for them. And that is such a reasonable approach. That's but me. That's I'm not, reasonable. But I've been disappointed so many times with my reasonableness. It's just not because um, I was on CNN last week. The first question the interviewer asked me was, I mean, where are we at here? And it was a statement because isn't it always it's the economy, stupid. And I was sort of dumbfounded by that because I thought, OK, <laughs> like if it's if that's the issue, then we're good. Right. But the way it's being presented, of course, is not. Mm -hmm. And we're getting this failure again, which is why Biden. It's actually up to him. He needs to figure out a way to communicate directly. And that's when he's so good. That's when he can talk with this empathy that is Folks. undeniable. Mm -hmm. um, there was that moment when the Times didn't even endorse him. When he rode the elevator up with a woman who worked there and they ended up hugging and having like a great time. And that was captured and that went viral. When he joined the picket line, mm -hmm. when he actually, sure. when he calls people, mm -hmm. you get, when he, when there was that moment during the debate, when he said, my son, mm -hmm. when he was talking about Hunter Biden, my son, and he was just like his hand on it and you felt it mm -hmm. just, and you felt this man's not selfish love for his children, the way you, you feel with Trump, I will protect them at all costs. 
you felt this man's empathy and that moment yeah. should have resonated. But until he can figure out a way to do that, which again, I really think radio is the medium for him. We should be concerned. Yeah. Well, if, if someone is asking me that on CNN last week, we should be concerned. The economy is it's fine. Oil output. I think there are a lot of people who just hate Biden. And even though they're doing well with the economy, they say they're struggling because the facts just don't support that a fair amount of America is struggling. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to be insensitive or indifferent. People are struggling and we need more affordable housing. We need better health care. We need all those things. We need gas and food prices to come down. But because we say that, that doesn't negate the fact that the economy is on fire. I'm still banking on that, that people are going to go into that voting booth and they know how good it is or not. And so it's not a poll. It's not rhetoric. It's not at a, at a rally. It's literally, oh my God, I'm doing actually pretty okay right now. And if we put that maniac in, I don't know if I'm going to still be that way. So maybe that's naivete, but I, I do think I, I have faith in my fellow Americans. I hope Maybe so. Maybe that's my mistake. Well, I hope so. I think to come full circle, this isn't about my life is okay. My life is better than it was under Trump. Mm -hmm. I don't think it has to do with the economy. I think it has to do with a hierarchy and mm -hmm. a sense of entitlement and oppression. Yeah. And racism and all kinds of things. Yes. So that's what makes it unique. So yeah, conventional wisdom doesn't quite apply here. But Alexis, this was a really fascinating conversation. Uh, I kind of skimmed the surface of what I want to discuss. So that means you have to come back and do this again. I would um, love to. But before I let you go, we here in the back room, we like to get a window into people's souls. And one of the ways we do that is through music. So I want to know, and I bet you they don't ask you this on CNN. <laughs> give me your top five musical artists of all time. Oh, my goodness. You know when someone asks you, like, what your favorite movie, and then you just blank? I'll tell you what I was listening to today. That's not the same. Well, because I, do, I think it is sort of, I you know? I listened to uh, Drake today. I'm not going to put him on my top five. Well, but if we're looking at we also, we, the collective we, just got our Spotify lists, our uh -huh. summaries, which are so, it's a sobering moment for me always at the end of the year. It's what I've actually been listening to. Um, I love this is I'm going to start out like sounding kind of fancy, but I love Vivaldi. Mm -hmm. um, and Who I, doesn't? Yes. And I like recomposed mm -hmm. seasons for me always does it. And I think I listen to that all the time. It's a total mood for me. I've been listening to I can't really deny that I love them because I, I won't listen to them for a year and then I'll listen to them on Beirut. I really still love Beirut, mm. um, you know, in my household. Taylor Swift is is pretty big, um, and I'm really enjoying watching all this happening. That's crazy stuff that's going it on. It's crazy. That, I've, that's I've, a whole other episode. I wish they would get more creative. I was like, there's so many connections you could make to Russia. Like, shake it off as like Lenin, like Taylor's version. You can have that. There's like other things. 1989. What happened then? Mm -hmm. Communists felt mm -hmm. like, and she was born. Coincidence. Mm -hmm. um i've been listening to blame brett from the beaches i really like them um i don't know if all time but i've been listening to them a lot and i still i like like broken social scene and kind of still college music i um did i am i five 
Okay, we're gonna stop there. I'm, uh, you know, I like, I like them all. Mm -hmm. I do. Francis and the Lights, I've liked for a long time too. I'll go with six. Mm -hmm. We have Taylor Swift, but I mean, come on, they they've got Kid Rock and Ted Nugent. Does that make you just even a little bit jealous? Not in the least. I think it's, I think it's pretty. That was a trick question, by the way, and you passed the test. I mean, I couldn't even name a Kid Rock song. I was, you were saying that I was like, I don't know. But that's the only. I remember him. I could probably, I couldn't pick him out of a lineup. I think, like, if you know, I'm sure he was in plenty of lineups. (laughs) Certainly, he would just look like another Trump supporter. So no, they've Mm -hmm. never had the Republicans have never had good music. Culture has never been on their side. No. That's well. That's that. That's Just indicative telling. of something, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Well, thanks again for coming in, and do come back. Thank you. Alrighty. Take care. Thanks. This episode of the Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg, and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander, and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week. Bye.